0: pain. It's something we all deal with. Some of us deal with it on a daily basis. Some use NSAIDs to deal with pain. Some turn to opioids.
1: But what's the healthiest way to deal with pain? How do you treat your insistent pain without doing more damage to your body? Today, our colleague from Healthy Directions, Dr.
0: Joe Pergolizzi, will be joining us. He's a world-renowned expert on pain management.
1: We'll be talking about natural ways to feel better, how we can address the opioid epidemic, and what you can do to improve your overall health welcome to be healthistic the podcast that is more than just health
0: and wellness information it's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will feature video versions of our episodes, plus video extras you won't wanna miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other Healthy Directions experts over on the Healthy Directions site. So visit healthydirections.com to explore our database of well-researched content and information. And of course, you can always follow us on our social media channels. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. Today, we are joined by Dr. Joe Pergolizzi. He's an internationally recognized pain management expert and a pioneer in pain medicine who practices multimodal treatment for optimal pain management, focusing on non-prescription options. Welcome to the show, Joe.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Drew. Pleasure to be here.
0: All right. Well, Joe, I think our listeners would love to know about how America got involved in this opioid epidemic right now. How, How did this happen?
2: Well, Drew, I think there's two sides to the story. I think part of the story is that we really wanted to address pain because it's the most common reason for people to treat or seek medical care, and particularly severe pain. So if we go back and look at the uh, pain management here in the United States, it's a very young specialty. So in the effort to try to address this problem of pain, particularly moderate to severe and severe pain, the information that we garnished from treating cancer patients as outpatients, along with their chemotherapy and other supportive care measures, then was brought into non-cancer chronic pain and acute pain. And this is where I think we probably would have benefited from more formal didactic training, in uh, medical school, and for other clinicians. So I think it starts with the education part, and then it gets layered on to a demand for quick, effective, pain-free situations.
0: What do you mean by pain-free? Um, how, how can a doctor set an expectation that anything will be totally pain-free?
2: You'll hear them say pain-free surgery. I mean, what does that really mean, Drew? Right? right. I mean, if someone's going to someone's going to take a scalpel to you, more than likely you're going to feel some type of pain. So I think expectations got a little ahead of ourselves, and at the same time, there were a lot of uh, different types of institutional guidelines and society guidelines were suggesting that you know we need to aggressively manage and treat pain because when pain is not appropriately Addressed particularly acute pain. What happens is we can uh, experience physiological changes uh, that are not good for the patient. Increased heart rate with increased oxygen demand, splinting in post-operative patients so they're not getting uh, appropriate respiratory exchange. We also see issues with the immune system, nutrition, etc. So when you don't aggressively and adequately treat particularly severe pain in the acute setting, you can have lots of um, negative consequences. So this acute pain, when unchecked, appropriately can lead to a system of chronic pain, because the body is using pain as an alarm. It says something's wrong here, and you don't want to do this anymore. That's part of the idea. We should take Uh, that very strongly and we should try to avoid those type of activities or seek medical care, particularly for severe pain.
0: I agree completely. I love the idea of the body using pain as an alarm as the body is just so amazing at letting you know when something's wrong.
2: Right. A lot of times what happens is a primary care doctor might look at what a specialist is doing and they may send their patient who's in pain that they're not able to control to the specialist. And the specialist then will do different things like interventional procedures, or maybe they would have put them on an opioid and then send the patient back. And sometimes you'd say, well, look, that worked for that patient. I have a similar patient. Maybe I'll try to employ those strategies. And without the basic fundamental knowledge, because we just didn't have that type of in-depth training, I think we we wound up not assessing the whole entire picture in, in, in certain patients.
0: And of course, the prescription opioids have the addictive piece, and that's going to lead to the next part you're going to talk about is why people are getting hooked on these meds.
2: Right. So if we look at these medications, we have to realize that the opioid system in our body is really one of the intrinsic systems that we have as human beings to manage pain. And we have natural opioids, we call them endogenous opioids, the enkephalins and the endorphins. And these get uh, released by the body when we have pain. The problem is that they don't last as long and they're very temporary and they get broken down. And on top of that, you may metabolize these drugs differently from one person to another. And that can lead to differences in how you respond to the drug. So some people may respond to codeine where a third of the population may not because they don't break codeine down into hydrocodone. Some people may respond to hydrocodone, but then hydrocodone gets broken down into hydromorphone. So there's a lot of different dynamics when you take these medications. The one thing we have to realize is that these mu receptors do more than just address pain. Uh, They affect your gastrointestinal system. They affect your central nervous system in different ways. They can result in what we call off-target effects, an opioid or an opioid pain medication. We want to get an on-target effect of pain relief, but these medications are not selective and they affect all the targets. So the off-targets can happen as well. And the off target effects are things like uh, opioid induced constipation. One of those may also be euphoria. And when we think about euphoria, we think about, you know, the, the presence of feeling good. So some people who are in a lot of pain may look at this different. And not only are they getting pain relief, but now after being miserable, they're feeling euphoric, if you want to use that term. And this might, Be one of the reasons why people could uh, then have different types of problems, what we call aberrant behaviors. And over time, you probably are going to need more of the same drug to get the same effect. And if tolerance builds up, now the patient's requiring more medication than they probably need. So it's not unreasonable to say, you know, a patient's pain could be getting worse. That's why you may have to increase the dose. Or, they may be getting tolerant and all of a sudden you're increasing the
1: dose beyond what they really need. One of the things that I'm privy to actually been for decades is in the post-op surgical, you know, patient who underwent a bypass or abdominal aneurysms, Uh, pacemakers, we, we did a lot of those, but you know, the pain management was, you know, wasn't serious with pacemakers, but I can remember I had some patients with bypass surgery that were absolutely miserable. I had a few patients who only healed by secondary intention. In other words, when the wires were put into the chest and the patient for some reason developed an infection, which was you know, horrible, uh, a lot of these wounds had to heal secondarily and it would take several weeks to months for these people to get healed. Fortunately, fortunately, the uh, in the bypass patient who had an incision in the chest, the pain management wasn't too difficult. It was only in a very few patients, especially with the secondary intention. But in your experience, has the bypass population been troublesome for you, you know, mm-hmm. or, is, or especially the chronic pains from not the incision, but the wires that were in the chest? I mean, about 3% of my patients had chronic pain. And I used to tear my hair out trying to, you know, manage these people because it was difficult.
2: Well, you know, Dr. Sinatra, you're absolutely right. The difference between acute and chronic pain is that something over time has gone wrong. Our body tries to heal itself, as you know, and this process may not always work right. And we call that maladaptive, central, meaning your nervous system, neuronal, meaning your nerves, plasticity. So trying to get back to where it is and somehow it gets rewired the wrong way. And this can result in chronic pain, particularly pain that is going to be related to some type of trauma like this. You know, surgical trauma when you crack the chest is a pretty big insult to the patient. Now, thankfully, the majority of people, like you said, will not have this. But some people do. And when they have chronic pain, we have to think about, well, how are we going to fix that? Because it's different than acute pain. If you hurt your knee, you can you know, use ice and heat, and, and I prefer topical type of pain medications to start with, and then maybe other oral over-the-counter pain medications, or going to a chiropractor or massage therapist or physical therapy. But when we come out, of surgery, let's say, and you have that type of pain that you suggested from the sternotomy, that's the cracking of the chest, or even very commonly, we see it from lung surgery. Patients who have their lungs operated on, we have a very high prevalence of post thoracotomy pain syndrome. We also see it with women who have breast surgery. A lot of women have chronic pain after breast surgery, particularly in their armpit. So something's gone wrong in the healing process. And that's where then we have to try to describe, well, what type of pain is that? There are different types of pain. Some pains are what we call more inflammatory. Some of them may be what we call neuropathic, where there's a lesion to the nerve. Something's happened. The nerve is not sensing and responding the proper way people who have diabetes commonly have this type of chronic neuropathic pain. When we're looking at this, what we find is that, you know, your body's going to try to adjust to this type of pain in different ways. And one of the things that happens in our system when we don't treat the acute pain right is that it's like leaving the fire alarm on. It just keeps ringing. And the people on the other side, and they want to do something about it. So we have what's called upregulation, right? meaning that now you're going to be even more sensitized. And,
1: right, and right.
2: We, right, we shift that curve to the right where normal touch now is painful and a painful pin pinprick is, is outrageously painful. That type of sensitization is what happens to people who have chronic pain. And then it becomes very difficult. We don't know if we can ever go back.
0: So just to clarify for our listeners, when you're talking about upregulation and becoming more sensitized to pain, something that should not be super painful, let's say a pinprick becomes way more pronounced and way more painful than it originally would have been. So how do we deal with this and what do we do about it?
2: So part of, I think, what I, what I like talking about is how do we appropriately address the type of chronic pain before it becomes chronic? And I think the first thing is they should be really educated consumers and they should know what their options are. And they need to be able to speak with their caregiver, their clinician. And there are lots of different clinicians now. When we think about how we, we sort of grade our pain, it's not uncommon that people use pain scale. They'll say zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain you ever had. What you'll find is people will say kidney stones, natural delivery, these are all tens, right? And then somewhere between that and no pain at all being a zero. So, so most people are going to have pain, and we sort of arbitrarily bucket them. We say mild pain is when you have pain that's about a zero to a four or five. And then we say moderate pain is when you go from like a five to a seven. Moderately severe pain is at seven and eight, and and severe pain is really eight and above. We want to be able to address that appropriately.
0: Right. I agree with you that the general pain scale is pretty arbitrary, so I can see how that's a contributing factor.
2: Now, we do have the option of looking at over-the-counters, and we recently did a survey of pain physicians at one of the largest pain meetings in the U.S. called Pain Week, and we found that when patients have moderate- pain, acute pain, that topical pain medications are very much preferred. We also found that patients really like non-pharmacological options. And I I, I know, Steve, you probably have used different things in your career to help patients um, for different types of pain. And they don't necessarily have to be a traumatic pain. People could start to have pains in their joints, and they may benefit from Things like turmeric or from chondroitin, different things to that effect, have been very helpful. There are other things you can do. I, I very much believe in in earthing or grounding. You know, where you take your
1: now. Now out. you're getting warm, Joe. That's I'm, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned earthing and grounding. Uh, but be, be, but before I get into that, one of the supplements that I used in a lot of my patients with neurogenic pain, uh, you know pain from a uh, nerve is alpha lipoic acid. I would use it in peripheral neuropathy. Um, I, I know in Germany, they were using like 600 milligrams a day. Yes. And um, and in my practice, and again, in a lot of these bypass patients who had pain in their sternum, I mm-hmm. actually, where nerves were cut, I actually did use alpha lipoic acid and I had great success. So, you know, as, as sort of like a, a nutraceutical you know, it works. Right. Omega-3s work too. I used a lot of yeah. omega-3s in my practice as anti-inflammatories mm. and I had great yeah. success. And then you mentioned earthing and grounding. And I have to tell you, in some of the worst pain syndromes I've seen in people who had refractory pain, some of these patients, and they wrote us beautiful articles, you know, on the, uh, when the earthing book came out, they were talking about, they were amazed that when they were placing their bare feet on Mother Earth for, you know, a half hour to 45 minutes, that a lot of their pain or the awareness of pain went down. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with the regulation of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system and and release of all as well. So I, I think you get an endocrine and you get a parasympathetic sympathetic response that's favorable. So... I really like some of the non-analgesic, non-anal- you know, uh, factors. So I would say earthing in any pain syndrome is is really the way to go. Hey, look, it's not going to hurt mm-hmm. you unless you're on a Coumadin or right. a serious blood right. thinner. You know, you, you, you want to t- do it with caution. But there's really no contraindication to earthing that I can see.
2: I'll, I'll be honest with you. If we just take a step back for a second, water. Good intake of water is very important. Avoiding sugars, avoiding artificial sweeteners, all of these things in the literature have been reported potentially to exacerbate pain as well.
0: So Joe, for a listener out there that may have just had surgery, they've been put on opioids, what's in your opinion a safe timeframe for them to be on it and then when to consider using non-pharmacological options?
2: Sure. That's a great question, and right now in the United States, there's a lot of emphasis on this because there is some data from the CDC that would suggest that if the longer you're on an opioid medication postoperatively, the higher the chance you have of experiencing those aberrant behaviors, which could include physical dependence, tolerance, and and ultimately opioid use disorder. So. The medical boards have looked at this very closely, and now in states like Florida, they only allow you to be on for three or five days or a total number of pills. And part of that is because when we went back and looked at some of the surveillance, we would notice that people would get prescriptions for these medications, and the prescriptions may be for 15 days, and it could be up to 100 pills, right? So now they're very much either capitated by the amount of days, that they have, or the amount of tablets. And what they're finding is anywhere between three to five days, and then if you're still having pain, you call back in and see your doctor because it could be something else. Now, in the hospital itself, they have what's called opioid stewardship, and they're trying to avoid using opioids in the hospital where they can, and they're trying to use it with other combinations of drugs as well. And particularly when you go home and you're discharged, let's say you had a knee surgery or hip surgery, you're going to go home and they're going to give you some physical therapy with that as well. So the idea is to move away from any long exposure to opioids because that can lead potentially to physical dependence and aberrant behavior.
0: And before you mention some topicals that you like using, what are some, first off, what are some pharmacological topicals and also some non-pharmacological topicals that you like to recommend?
2: The prescription topicals that are out there, a lot of them are compounded by the pharmacy. And if I would have been asked the question, how can gabapentin, this drug that works in the middle, in your spinal cord, how could you rub that in topically? And that's what people have to understand that your skin is a big organ and your skin can bring drugs into the body. Now, a real topical stays in the skin and that's where it works. And that's important because some people may be on a patch and they put a patch on so that the medication can get into their blood and it uh, bypasses their liver or they can't swallow, so they need a patch. Um there are a bunch of over the counter local anesthetics, and you know they themselves are not without concern. Some of them can cause uh, issues with your blood, methyl hemoglobinemia, right and that's in the the warning and precaution.
0: well, it's great to hear that there are so many topical options out there for folks who need to treat their pain.
2: so we have a bunch of different types of topical agents that you can use. And some are using now CBD oil, which you and I may talk a little bit more about. There are other things too, olive oil and some some anecdotal studies have shown, peppermint is another one, rosemary. Rosemary sometimes allows things to be absorbed quicker. So it's like an enhancer. And then when we look at other types of options, ice and and heat are good. I, I mentioned to you, when we put heat on something, we're increasing the circulation of blood to that area, and we're bringing more of those natural opioids, and natural endorphins and enkephalins there. When we and flushing out all the byproducts of of wound injury, when we put ice now, we close it down. We try to keep that uh, all contained in one area, and hopefully those things will that help us with pain relief will last a little longer as well. So, so ice and heat are are very important.
0: And what about systemic heat? You know, are you a fan of infrared saunas, for example? Do you like those?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I like it. You know, you, you people use different terminologies when these um, these infrared. So, you know, nowadays with the new LED lighting, you could see lots of different things. And I think what you have to realize is that this, this low laser level technology can potentially be very helpful. Uh, and so what are we trying to do with this? We're trying to energize the mitochondria. That's the idea. So actually, if I take off my doctor hat and go back to my my, my physicist and physical chemistry life, what we're looking here is the powerhouse of the cell is trying to get more energy in there. And this might do that. And, you know, there actually is a mechanism that that uh, mediates that, adenosine, these adenosine receptor modulators, particularly the AR, ARM3s, we call them. These are very, very interesting because um, – if you can mediate that part of the mitochondria through adenosine, then you can make the cells stronger, and you can make them repair quicker, and you may be able to decrease the inflammation. Remember, when these cells are hurt, they're like crying. ah, And when they're crying, they're letting out oxygen-free radicals and all these other things. There is lots of different reports out there. There is one report I read about osteoarthritis where 50% of the people said it was, it was good. It, it helped with their pain. Pain is very particular, right? So you're going to see different things work with different people. The other thing about pain, it's a perception, right? Because right now we're still in search of the biomarker of pain. So I could sort of judge yours and your dad's pain against each other, right? Based on a biomarker like cholesterol. We don't have that. I I, I sort of look at my patients that are in pain and and I try lots of different things to see which one's going to work for them
1: there's a very important practical thing we need need to consider. And I'd like to get Drew's opinion as well as yours, Joe's. I mean, let's face it, when you're in pain, you can't sleep. And uh, this is one of the biggest factors that I saw in my cardiology practice for years and, and now it's even worse with all the electromagnetics in the environment with melatonin going down and stuff like that. So anyway, it's wide open, but I think sleep and pain uh, are <laughs> sort of buddies in a way. And, and we have to, you know, take them into a direction where we have to get our patients to sleep comfortably. Cause remember when you're sleeping, you're healing.
2: You know, you hit it right on the head and I'd love to hear Drew. So I'll start with the pharmacological stuff. Sleep is such a big problem with pain that there is a tremendous amount of patients that get a co-prescription for benzodiazepine and an opioid. And that's not smart, right? And not so much because the FDA even has a boxed warning on that. And what the FDA is saying is, um, you know, pay attention to this because you can have what we call uh, additive or super additive or, even tenfold uh, respiratory depression when right. you give uh, benzodiazepine opioids. So let's take that elephant off the table. And then let's talk about some of the things you mentioned. Those liposomal gathers, some of the natural products, I love to hear what, what Drew thinks, are very important because, you know, pain patients do, do not have great sleep. You know, they also have anxiety and depression as well, comorbid index of 30 or 40%. And so- it is important that you get sleep. I could tell you that some of my fibromyalgia patients, they'll come in and I'll, I'll ask them, what's the main thing you want me to help you with? And they're like, I need to sleep, right? So I think that you have to address it, as you said. You need to think about different types of alternatives. But I've used many different types of alternatives, but I will say to patients that if you're getting a, an opioid medication for your pain, and you wanna make sure that whoever ever prescribing that knows whatever sleep medications you're taking to. That's really important. Drew, what do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean,
0: you know, liposomal varieties are great. If Some combinations out there are like GABA, L-theanine. Um, I've seen a lot of CBD added in there as well. You can add on some magnesium, maybe a little melatonin in there, and that can certainly help people fall asleep. Um, they don't work for everyone, but for a lot of people, they do help support sleep. So um, I'm all about
2: using those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like magnesium a lot, and Steve, I think maybe you and I had spoken
1: oh, about yeah, magnesium yeah.
2: before. I mean, I, I I love the drug. I mean, women who who have pain and also are going through menopause, I think they respond really well to magnesium and zinc, and just some of those uh, you know trace elements.
1: Right, right. And then just getting back to the cardiac point of view. Another dilemma I had often is I, I would have patients on cardiac meds and, and pain meds at the same time, sometimes there's a fine line. And the other thing, too, that I saw was probably, you know, from the cardiac point of view, when I was using pain meds, the sequelae of constipation came up in a lot of my patients. And Joe in my cardiac population, that was even worse than having pain. So I, what I would do to a lot of my patients, I would get them up walking more. I think walking was mm-hmm. one of the best ways of alleviating constipation yeah. and taking away their pain meds. And I'll tell you, when it came to this aspect, many of my patients preferred you know the pain a little yeah. bit of discomfort over the yeah. constipation so I, I think we need to address that it's because again it was a real finding of my pa- patient population especially those bypass patients that you know had the you know the incision in the chest and stuff like that so it's something that I think we should address yeah,
2: well you're right obviously when we open someone's chest we have to make sure that they physiologically can handle that from pain so we get- give them opioids. I mean, you're, you're going to do that. It's very painful. But then postoperatively, we start to switch them to different things. And we also, before the surgery now, give them medication that specifically address those opioids in the gut. And when they're activated in the gut, what they do are four basic things. They stop your peristalsis so that Sort of motion in the gut They increase the removal Of fluids from your gut So they make it dry They decrease the mucus in the gut So they, the stool can't slide forward And then they shrink your sphincters So it's hard dry stool Not going anywhere and that's what the problem is with ileus. And you're right; patients will do anything to have a bowel movement at that time, and they can't really be discharged from the hospital if they can't. So nowadays, we use other things like a premixed, ready-to-use bag of uh, NSAIDs. Um, You know, we found that a lot of the these can be managed with proper lower doses. When patients are at home. Um, and they have issues with some of their medications, there are other types of things they can do because, yeah, a lot of pain medications also cause uh, what we call bowel dysfunction. So there is fruits that you can use, increase your water, increase your fiber, and then there's a bunch of different Chinese remedies too that you might want to look at as well.
1: I guess that's the dilemma. I mean, how do you weave through pain and, and sleep and constipation? And, and I'll tell you, uh, uh my hat goes off to you, Joe, because managing these patients with pain, you know, you you get into a lot of dark alleys. And I, I think the good doctor here will, will look at all these aspects. They'll look at how are they sleeping? You know, are they moving their bowels? You know, what is their pain like? And then for a cardiologist like myself, well, is the pain provoking angina or is that making arrhythmias right. worse? So, right. you know, it's, um, you know, a lot, I don't think patients realize this, but a lot of doctoring, we're constantly putting our finger in a dike, you know, and trying to plug up this yeah. hole, right. that hole and this hole. And uh, sometimes it becomes a nightmare. But but in the end, remember this, the body always finds a way to heal itself. <laughs> and time heals. I love that. Anyway. And I'll
2: tell you, Steve, I've heard you say it before. It's, it's the body, like you said. Uh, the mind and the soul. But again, Drew, just to draw back to where we started. So what were some of the fundamental problems that got us into this opioid crisis? We just spoke about a whole bunch of them. There's a lot of different elements for you to pick the right course and do the right thing. And if you're not, if you don't have that primary basic understandings, then you potentially can have problems. And and that may be part of it too. And, and there may be part of it that is on the patient side. and, with maybe initial good intentions, you know, they want to get out of pain. They want to be the good patient and they're not getting good pain relief. They're afraid that's going to be the bad patient. So what do they do? They're asked their friend, can I, what, what did you get for your bad back? Oh, can I try that? And those are things you shouldn't do. And those are some of the problems that led to this crisis. I think now we're, we're at least focusing very heavily on education and appropriate prescription, and looking at outcome measurements so that we're always seeing if the patient's getting better. And that's important.
0: Well, earlier we mentioned uh, having CBD and some topicals. Um, And I use a lot of CBD orally for patients that are in mild pain. I mean, I'm certainly, Joe, not treating anywhere near the scope you are in terms of moderate and severe pain. Uh, But for those who are suffering from mild pain, whether that is something like it's Crohn's disease and they're having abdominal pain or someone that um, has back pain, more of a you know, chronic state. I do like CBD. I do find that it can be effective for some people, but do you do you use it orally in your practice? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I was very fortunate to help look at the only people in the United States who had a principal investigator-mediated study that was registered with FDA for synthetic cannabinoids for pain and diabetes and cancer and with spasticity due to MS. So we learned a lot from that. And remember, that is a synthetic one. So um, you can get more of a sort of pointed response. And when we look at the natural CBDs, uh, I think we have to sort of ask ourselves, well, is it hemp-based? Is it uh, marijuana-based first? And then how pure is it? And what type of concentration are we getting? And if if you have experience like you do, then you're able to give better uh, suggestions to your patients, and that's key. Because I love capitalism, but a lot of the CBD I see being sold nowadays are soccer moms, with all due respect, meaning that they may not have that fundamental understanding. And in a sense, if you think about this, if you wanted to be a critic of CBD. You could say that this is one of the largest unsanctioned uh, clinical research experiments in the world.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. There, There is so much junk out there with CBD. I mean, you can go to a gas station these days and buy CBD there. I mean, that that to me is just, it's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah,
2: that's why they need people like you, qualified individuals. Now, I uh, then was asked to be involved with CBD in California, and I met a budmaster. And that was a lot of fun. He was about 17 years old, and uh, I got to tell you, he knew more about the pharmacology than I think I ever did, and I was a former pharmacology professor. So, so that gets down to another point. Like you said, you, know, you got to demystify this. I think that if p- pay clients or patients want CBD, they need to go to qualified individuals, and they need to understand what they're getting. And then I think that we're going to get to the point where we're going to unlock the nature and the beauty of this particular uh, uh, option for many different types of, of issues. And pain is one of them. So in the past, when I had patients who had cancer pain and you could not prescribe it in Florida, I would send them to California. And so I think that there is a genuine value of it. I think it really is best served in the hands of an individual like yourself who can help clients or patients or people better understand what the right choice is. Because right now it's just too much a blanket and everybody's involved and everybody says their product is better than another, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's a couple of things I could tell you as a doctor and as a scientist. These plants are very much based on the genetic code of the plant. And each one is different, right? The strands. Another thing to realize is that they may have trace elements in them. And some of those trace elements may not be as healthy. Some of these plants may not, uh, may ha- be susceptible to fungus. It was a big clinical study that was stopped at the major academic centers for medicinal marijuana because it had fungus in it. So again, they need to be going to people like you who are investing the time, to vet these products, and to give proper guidance. Uh, otherwise, it's an uncontrolled experiment, and then you're not going to get the results you want. And Joe, what's your
0: take on, on medical marijuana for pain management, including THC? We just talked about CBD, but I want to hear your take on THC.
2: Sure. It's very interesting. Um, I have my own impression, and then I recently went to a big conference down in Naples, Florida, from Johns Hopkins, where I previously was a part-time adjunct assistant professor. And I heard them talk about what they're doing with medicinal marijuana and different uh, extracts of it. And I think if I paraphrase the keynote speaker, that we have many miles to go still to figure it all out. I think what we find is sort of a combination of, again, public demand and expectations and the concept of having a balance between do no harm and getting some type of uh, relief for certain certain uh, patients. So I think what we're seeing right now for pain is anecdotally, a lot of people that I know who are prescribing this and some of my patients who have been prescribed it will tell me that it does help, particularly for their cancer pain. Um, and it may have some other type of effects, like helping them gain more appetite, right? I think we're sort of at the crossroads right now, where uh, we have an opportunity to explore this natural product and to better understand how it might be able to help people. Uh, but at the same time, we have to be cautiously optimistic, and we have to be vigilant ourselves. So if we're not going to do the standard type of drug development that we would with other things, then we have to impose it upon ourselves as individuals that uh, believe in it and support it to always be looking to do no harm.
0: All right. That's great. All right. Well, as we wrap up, let's leave our uh, audience here with some takeaways Uh, from Joe, what you were talking about today. It it appears that a, a multimodal therapy approach is really what's necessary to treat pain acute and chronic. I mean, I was blown away today hearing you speak even you mentioned uh, euphoria as a side effect. I never even thought about that. The, the way your brain is is thinking around all these things is just incredible. So I learned so much about even like the foods we're eating, uh, our mindset, you know, what medications were prescribed, you know, what other sort of non-pharmacological things we can take. These things all play a role with pain and how people get better. So I learned so much today from you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. To recap today, I think it's important to realize that Pain still is the number one reason why people seek medical care. All types of doctors have to take care of pain. All of us are going to have pain at some point in time in our life, unless you have a certain genetic uh, predisposition to have no pain. And trust me, you wouldn't want that. The other thing we have to realize is that if we don't appropriately treat acute pain, it can go into chronic pain. And there are different shades of pain and different reasons why we will have pain. And it's important to realize that you have lots of different things you can do. And in the event you are prescribed an opioid uh, and whoever prescribes it for you has done appropriate risk management strategies, then you need to make sure that that opioid is for a certain amount of time and that it's hitting its endpoints. Because otherwise, we may get down that spiraling hole and don't forget about things we talked about, like tolerance and dependence and opioid use disorder and aberrant behaviors.
0: Well, those are some great points for our listeners to keep in mind.
2: So we want to use multimodal, that's pharmacological and non-pharmacological, and multi-mechanistic. That means different ways of addressing your pain. Topicals are a great way to start, particularly with acute pain. Remember that they stay in the skin where the pain is. And then a lot of things like your dad mentioned. You know, think about how we can improve nerve health. Think about how we can use things like earthing and grounding. These are all important and they're all good for the patient. The patient's got to own their pain and understand that they're the ones who best can manage it. And it's a two-way street with whoever's helping them. So, Drew, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I hope I, I brought some insight.
0: Oh, it's great having you on the show today,
1: Joe. Thanks so much. So just to summarize, I think we could all agree, I mean, we're all clinicians, that the most important operative in the management of our patients is really the reduction of pain and suffering. I mean, let's face it. I mean, patients will show us enormous gratitude Uh, whenever we can reduce pain and suffering, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, of course, but that's the aspect of being a a really good doctor. So Joe, thanks so much. I appreciate all you're doing for your patients and Drew as a naturopath, uh, my heart's out to you because you offer so many great ways of uh, alleviating pain as well. And hopefully between the three of us, we've given our patients a lot of information that they can sink their teeth into and get well. Since we were talking all about pain
0: management today, our wellness wisdom segment focuses on one of the most common complaints, according to Dr. Pergolizzi, lower back pain. If you're suffering from lower back pain, you're not alone. About 80% of people will experience some type of back pain over the course of their lifetime. It's a persistent, nagging pain that disrupts everything you're trying to do during your busy day. For many people dealing with severe chronic pain, surgery may be the only viable option, so it's important to have a discussion with your doctor about the risks and benefits of surgery before opting to take this course of action. But the good news here is that there are numerous ways to get relief from lower back pain without resorting to surgery. Therefore, I wanted to take the time to share some of the more common non-surgical treatment options for back pain that can help if you're really suffering. Heat or Ice Heat packs and ice can help to relieve lower back pain. Some people find that alternating between the two works best. Manual manipulation and massage therapy. This treatment can be conducted by an osteopathic doctor, a chiropractor, physical therapist or other qualified pain health professional. Exercise A program of back exercises will usually include a combination of core and back strengthening, stretching and low impact aerobic exercise. Electrostimulation. This includes transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or TENS units, various types of electrofrequency application, and spinal cord stimulation. Pain medication. Typical oral pain medications to treat lower back pain include acetaminophen, NSAIDs, oral steroids, and muscle relaxants. Topical OTC and prescription pain relief products also exist and are good options. Hopefully, some of these tips will help you get some relief from your lower back pain without drastic measures. Remember everyone, if you liked what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions, with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.